Welcome to the Volpreneur Podcast Show. My very special guest today is Leslie Zane, who's a passionate leader who believes that our potential for success is, unli- is limitless. Nicknamed Miss Question by her business schoolmates, Leslie's endless intellectual curiosity fueled her search for exclusive key to customer changing customer behaviour. She began her journey at, at blue chip companies and then struck out on her own to, f- to found Triggers, the first woman, woman-owned brand consultancy with a mis- express mission of increasing top-line revenue for her clients consistently. For over 25 years, the company has developed a track record of accelerating growth through its unique expertise in changing brand preferences at an instinctual level. CMOs often joke the major difference between their work and those of other strategy firms, 100 times their size, is their approach is that their approach actually works. Leslie received a BA from Yale University and her MBA from Harvard Business School. Uh, she's a TEDx speaker. She's been published in Harvard Business Review, Review, Knowledge Wharton, MIT Sloan Review, Forbes, Ad Age, CMO, Barron's, Newsweek, Media Post, Scientific American, and many more. <laughs> Very cool. Welcome, welcome, Leslie, to the show. Thank you so much, John, for having me. What a kind introduction. Thank you so much, and it's a pleasure to be here. Cool. Yeah, always, um, always a challenge when you go into those intros to see what they're going to discover something along the way. So, um, give me a little bit of background on, on, because normally when we talk to listeners, they're entrepreneurs, so they're basically people who are particularly probably starting up in business or been a little while trying to figure out stuff. Um, so probably kind of in your wheelhouse. Um, so how did you get to this level? Obviously, um, you did a lot of um, stuff at university and stuff. Was that early on in your life? Like, did you start early with that, or was that something you did later in life? Well, I always had two sides to my personality or two things that interested me. I had one side that was very analytical. I loved business. I was fascinated by it. And then the other side was very creative, artistic, uh, and um, liked more of the artistic pursuits. And so in uh, college, I actually double majored in art history and economics, and that satisfied, you know, both sides of me. And so I think I was always looking for a profession that would combine both, and that's what marketing really uh, did for me. Okay. And so um, what was the sort of the trigger to, to set, begin your own company? So did you work, work for someone first and then start your own company? What, what was the kind of... Yes. Uh, so I worked uh, after business school in a number of different Fortune uh, 500 uh, companies, great marketing organizations, great brand management organizations. And I learned a ton uh, at all of those places. Um, but I also uh, learned what didn't work. Mm. And I think what really surprised me was that I was at great companies like you know Procter & Gamble, for example, but yet success was very hit or miss. And I thought, gee, that's, that's odd. Here I am at the blue chip marketing company of the world. And a lot of the things that we try, a lot of marketing initiatives don't have a very good return on investment. So I started out uh, in 1995 um, with the express intent of starting a company that would create a process that would get consistent top line growth every single time not like a random thing where somebody had a, an idea for a, a great tagline or, uh, you know, a great new advertising campaign. I wanted consistency. That's mm-hmm. what I set out to, to, to create, and, and that's um, fortunately what we've been able to achieve. Right. That's pretty cool. And so, yeah, I mean, it's interesting. A lot of people you find start off in big companies, and I think it's a good thing I started off working in the bank when I was like 15 or 16, so it's like you've got 
you get great training and I think that really sets you up and a lot of entrepreneurs seem to have a, like a, no pun intended, like a trigger point where, um, you know, you end up in a situation where you're sort of like cruising along in a bit, in a, in a um, job and then suddenly something happens to you and sometimes it's you leave, like for me I left, either you pushed or, <laughs> or you jump one of the two um, and, and you sort of start off in somewhere else and then it goes from there if you, or some people go back, like they just can't cope with the with the idea of running their own business and they don't realize, realize how hard it is in some respects um, and they go back to go and, get, go and get a job kind of thing. I, I think that's exactly right and that's certainly what happened to me. There, there was a moment of, of an epiphany mm-hmm. for me. Uh, I was at a, um, a top baby care company and one of the things that I noticed was that um, fathers were getting more involved in baby care. Mm-hmm. Uh, they were, you know, getting much more involved. They were changing diapers. They were getting up in the middle of the night. Uh, they were going to their uh, children's little league games, uh, and it was something that was uh, definitely an evolution. Um, but the company that I was working for still only had mothers and babies, and quite frankly, you know, Caucasian, uh, blonde, <laughs> blue-eyed mothers and babies in all of their advertising. And so I recommended that they put, I I recommended they do something revolutionary, put the first father in a baby care ad. (laughs) That (laughs) definitely was revolutionary at the time. I know it doesn't sound like it is now, but Mm. it was back then. And my bosses thought I was nuts. Um, And I kept going at this um, because I don't, (laughs) I don't back off easy when I believe something. I'm very passionate about it, especially when I have a lot of, you know, facts to support it. Um, But uh, what happened was I had a performance review that year. And in that performance review, it said very clearly in black and white, Leslie is too passionate about putting fathers in advertising, and this is a, an executional as opposed to a strategic recommendation. Well, you could not have you know, said anything worse to me. This was a huge insult. It was like a knife in my heart because yeah. if I thought of myself as anything, it was as being a strategic business person. Um, but again, I, I still didn't give up and little by little, I, I made some headway and eventually they did put the first father in a TV ad and guess what happened? What? <laughs> it was the highest scoring commercial in the company's history uh, and uh, products started flying off the shelves. So what uh, happened then? <laughs> so, it, you know, that was a real turning point for me because mm. I had sort of inadvertently discovered my first trigger. Mm. Um, what the father uh, and the baby were was a subconscious shortcut, a cue that was packed with positive meaning mm. um, that mothers really connected with at a subconscious level. It was not something that showed up in any of their research. Um, and it, it worked and it drove business. And so I was able to show a direct connection between what's going on in the subconscious and what's going on in terms of your sales. Um, and so with that, and, and I, I, I worked at a couple of other companies after that, but I knew at that moment that I was onto something mm. and that I was going to start my own company and that I, I needed to start my own company if I was going to really pursue um, this this whole concept. 
And it's interesting, isn't it? Like when I went to school, um, maybe one out of out, two or three people in the classroom didn't have mothers and fathers, right? It's at home. Wow. And now it's kind of the other way around almost. Like it's almost like you, it's the opposite. It's flipped around. So that father style, what's happening there is a trend that was happening probably at the time that, that the people didn't even notice what was going on. And yeah. Exactly. Exactly. Mm-hmm. So, so you have so you talked to me about <clears throat> something called sub, subconscious marketing and how it differs from conscious marketing. And just tell me, let's dig into that and tell me what you what you mean about that type of subconscious marketing. So we have two different parts of our brain: our conscious brain and our subconscious brain. And only about five to ten percent of the decisions that we make are actually made by our conscious brain. 90 to 95% of our brand decisions are made by our subconscious brain. And they, they really operate very differently. When you market to the conscious brain, you in, encounter resistance. Uh, you can incentivize the conscious brain. You can offer it discounts and buy one, get one free, uh, and all different kinds of um, Uh, financial incentives. You can give it superlative claims. You can try to persuade and convince it. But it's the conscious brain sees you coming. It's Mm -hmm. very skeptical. It's very resistant to change. It's very rigid. And that's why it's so hard to get growth. It's it's that's why it's so hard to get market share gains. In contrast, the subconscious brain is actually very malleable. Ideas seep in there without your realizing it because that part of the brain is just on, you know, automatically. And so if you, if you market to the subconscious brain, you can get your ideas in there more easily, uh, faster, you can make gains more rapidly, and you can actually change minds and change behavior much more rapidly than just going the, sub, the conscious route. Mm-hmm. Makes sense too, and I mean, you look at something like Facebook. I mean, they're they're big on subconscious, and and I was actually saw a website the other day that did a did a um did a they did a, a documentary on on stuff like social media, and one of the things that they did is they put a, a a circle with a notification button on their website, and when you click on it, it says we knew you'd click on this, <laughs> right? Huh? Right, and it's so profound. Wow. Like you know, straight away you're programmed to, to sort of clear notifications because that's a subconscious thing. It's not something that you would normally just go, oh, I need to clear it. You just do it because you've been, you know, essentially trained into it. A hundred percent, a hundred percent. And and the, the truth is that most marketing departments, most advertising agencies, are still kind of stuck in a conscious marketing model. Um, when you think about it, you know the rules of marketing were created 50 years ago in the times in the time of Mad Men, mm. um, and those rules were created before we knew anything about brain science. Mm. But today we do know about brain science. We know how people make decisions, and that it's mainly on instinct. And so, what we really need to do is throw out that old rule book and develop a whole new rule book. Um, that is based on facts and how people actually make decisions and the way they make decisions is basically on instinct. 
it's interesting. I'm reading a book called Confessions of an Admin and um, and reading back on their kind of what he believes back then. And a lot of it feels comes true in terms of running an ad agency and stuff like that. But the actual beliefs of stuff that are going back and talking about he's talking about TV just got started ten years ago and all that sort of stuff. And you think wow. the world's changed so much. And that book was I think updated in probably '75 or '80 or something like that, even before computers really were out. So the world certainly changed. And I think that's part of the issue is that people still think um, they haven't really discovered there's an actual brain there and it's bizarre that they haven't. <laughs> it's always one makes me wonder why it's so obvious, but they don't seem to get it. Um, but, yeah. How I think about it um, is, is basically we're really not competing. Brands are not competing out on marketplace shelves. They're really not competing on Amazon. They are really competing in the subconscious mind of your customers and your growth target, the prospective customers you want to get. Mm-hmm. And they're, these brands are like fighting it out for domination of the subconscious. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that is the battle that, that companies actually need to know that they're, that they're fighting. Um, but, but most people still are sort of trapped in the old model. Mm. Actually, I've got a I've got a doctor client. He's a really good doctor, but as a marketer, he's got some some <laughs> some old fashioned ideas. And he always come to me and say, "Oh, look, let's discount something or do this." And I'm going, "It doesn't work." You know, like let's give it away for free. Or it's like there's certain levels you can do, but at the end of the day, it's not the psychology of the person you want. Like you you've actually got to match up the type of customer you want and think about what they actually believe in and and like not so much what you know what they are and i think that's the danger nowadays is marketing hasn't kind of figured that out yet i think it's some are really good at it (laughs) but most are still and i think that's where the opportunity lies right is that ability to get market share if you actually use the brain a hundred percent couldn't agree more Mm, cool so you've written something called knowledge wharton so as an australian have no clue what that is um (laughs) and um and something called brand connectome so why is that important? What's that kind of, has it come about? So Knowledge at Wharton is the digital magazine for mm-hmm. uh, the Wharton School of Business, which gotcha. is yep. part of University of Pennsylvania. So that's what Wharton is. Cool. And I wrote an article called Cracking the Code on Brand Growth. And in that uh, article, um, which I wrote with uh, Professor Michael Platt, a Wharton professor, we talk about the brand connectome. What is the brand connectome? It is really uh, an ecosystem of associations that exists in your subconscious that get glued to the brand over time. Little by little, positive and negative associations get glued to your brand, whatever that brand is. And by the way, everything is a brand or has a brand. You're a brand. I'm a brand. Um, President Trump is a brand. Joe Biden is a is a brand. Um, the Republican and Democratic Party are brands, you know, everything has a brand mm. uh, and everything has a brand connectome. And when you think about it, when somebody goes to the supermarket and let's say reaches for the same brand over and over and over again, they're com- doing it completely unconsciously mm. most, most of the time. So um, I don't know if you have the same brands here Some over there them, yeah. in Australia yeah. that we have here. Yeah, but so let's say you're on the, going to the orange juice aisle. Mm-hmm. A lot of people will just reach for Tropicana. And they'll just reach for that brand over and over and over again without thinking. In fact, they don't even see the other brands mm. around. It's invisible, right? It's like, it's, it's like a little highlight sitting on the thing. <laughs> it's like a little highlight, exactly, mm. because you are on autopilot. Mm. And so what we, at Triggers, we've discovered why you're on autopilot. 
The reason you're on autopilot is because in your subconscious, there is an ecosystem of associations that's larger. It has a larger footprint in your brain and it's also more positive, has more positive than negative associations than other orange juice brands mm. in your subconscious. And really, there are two things that dictate whether a brand is going to be large and going to be your dominant instinctive choice or not. And that is the brand has to have the larger footprint in your brain, uh, has to have more physical territory, sort of like a game of Monopoly. You need to own more physical real estate in the mind so it's more salient than it's your go-to. And in order for it to be growing, a growing brand, it needs to have more positive than negative associations. And when you have both of those things going on, that means you have instinctive brand preference for that brand. And that's the holy grail of marketing. Mm. You want somebody to buy your brand over and over and over again on autopilot without thinking uh, because then it's like the marketing equivalent of a financial annuity. It just mm -hmm. keeps on giving over and over again every time they go into the store. And, and really what I like to say is that you don't make your brand choices. Your brand connect home does. You're not aware of it, but it is your brand connect home that is literally forcing you to buy that brand. That's interesting. And I think um, in a marketing perspective, they reckon that the, the best buyer or the best customer is an iPhone user because of their, their makeup of what causes them to buy that brand. That, that's exactly right. And I, I can't believe you're throwing out that example because that's one of the main examples I always use mm. of a healthy brand connectome. If you look at the Apple or the iPhone brand connectome, and I don't just mean in the minds of the current customers, but in the minds of the prospective customers, it's incredibly positive. And the associations that are in there are not just uh, associations that the brand puts out there. So you would think that in the brand Connectum, I would tell you that there's going to be things like that it's, um, it's designed really well, it's user-friendly, it's state-of-the-art, it's advanced. And yes, well, and oh, there'll be an Apple, you know, and the name, uh, all of that will be in there. Sure, that goes without saying. Those are the things that the company communicates. But there's also the things that the mind communicates and other associate that, that the mind has created about Apple that are in your Apple brand connectome mm -hmm. and other associations that you've made. So inside the Apple brand connectome is Steve Jobs mm -hmm. and Steve Jobs black turtlenecks mm -hmm. and the 15 movies you've seen about Steve Jobs life. Uh, and if you've ever FaceTimed with your grandmother, particularly during COVID, then your grandmother is going to be in the Apple brand connectome. Mm. So it's really not just the things that the company puts out in its communications. It's what the brain creates. And that's why it's so important to understand the subconscious drivers and the positive and negative associations inside your brand connectome because they're actually the growth drivers the drivers of your business, as well as the barriers, the negative associations are the things that hold you back from growth. And mm. understanding those two things, um, the, the drivers and the barriers, are what enables you to understand, okay, what do I do next to develop my brand, to make it healthier? And basically, you have to prune the negative associations, 
add more positive associations and get that brand connectome to branch out, to sprout more branches so it takes over more physical territory in your brain. So it's interesting, um, something happening just probably in the last, I think, like in the last week or something, and this will be an interesting kind of case study, I reckon, and, and we'll probably look at it in 12 months' time and, and, and we'll see what happens. But Netflix put out a, a fairly risky movie, and we won't get into you know exactly why that, but they put out a risky movie, um, and it's, it's got a lot of young girls in it and stuff like that. So at the end of the day, what's happened now is it's been associated with that, and now people are cancelling their Netflix accounts because of it, Right. And Netflix is standing strong and saying, no, no, this, this movie, you know, you should watch it or whatever. And so their arrogance in some respects is not listening to the customer's perceptions or anything like that. And people are just are basically leaving them on emotion, not logic. So, I mean, if you watch a TV show and they, they put a movie on you didn't like, you just change the channel and the next week you go back and watch the same TV show again. Mm. So it's not like it, but for some reason Netflix has been associated with the fact, oh, they put one thing on I don't like, I'm not going to watch the entire thing, I'm just going to cancel it. And that could be a massive effect on their, their bottom line, yet their arrogance about saying they don't want to be proved wrong is they're going to keep with it, and it's going to cost them in that situation. So their, their connection's now bad, right? That suddenly the, the connection you had with Netflix a week ago was good, and the other connection with Netflix is bad because someone else has said they don't like it. So that's exactly right. And, and really what you just explained, I think, very clearly is that a brand connectome is not a finite thing. So for Netflix, it's not just the Netflix brand, but it's all the different television series and movies that they have, and probably particularly the television series which define them, mm. um, that are part of its very large brand connectome. And um, if there is a programming in there that is antithetical to, antithetical to consumers' values, then it's going to definitely make a, a, a dent, a negative association in the Netflix brand connectome. And it makes total sense that that would, you know, create alienation, create barriers, get people, you know, who feel strongly enough about that, that issue to, to leave the brand. And it could actually damage their brand uh, long term um, if, they, if they, you know, do other things along the similar lines. And it'd be interesting to see what happens because, I mean, there was a comment made on one of the Facebook posts that said, um, let's see how many people join up again, join back up again next week. So they'll, they'll, they'll say, yeah, I'm quitting. And then they'll go, oh, I really want to watch the next, the next series has come out of something. And then they'll just go and reconnect anyway. And they'll, they'll probably put some justifications in their mind somewhere along the line. They'll go back. So I mean, I think Netflix probably thinks, yeah, well, we, we've, we've got them addicted. They'll go back. <laughs> we won't lose that many in the end or the numbers. It'll be interesting to see how this, this plays out. I think how companies handle negative um, news uh, things like this is is very telling, mm. uh, and really does define the company. You know, the the um, of course the most famous one is the Tylenol scare, uh, where Johnson and Johnson handled that situation so beautifully that it actually added to mm. their perceived value as a brand. So mm. I think Netflix really needs to be careful uh, how yeah. they handle this one. You make a great point. Yeah. So, I mean, that's the thing is like you can you make one mistake and, and I think it, it comes down to your values. I think in some respects the, the values of the company and, their, and what they're really in it for come out sooner or later. And I think that's, that's going to be the challenge in any sort of any brand creation, isn't it? Your values 
um, your brand's values really should be a reflection of your customers' values. Mm. And when those two things are aligned, you have a match. Um, And that's really what we're trying to create, a match between the brand and the customer. And if there's a misalignment of those values, then things start to go uh, awry. What's really interesting, though, is um, the larger the brand connectome, the more it can withstand some of these negative assaults. Mm. So a large brand connectome um, has a lot of uh, playroom, a lot of wiggle room, um, and it can, it can have some negative things happen to it. It won't be the demise of the brand. It might probably stunts growth a little bit. Uh, but it won't destroy the brand. That's why it's so important to have built up a large, hefty, positive brand mm. connectome, a robust one, because in, in some sense, that brand connectome is a buffer of goodwill, and you need that. So when the, when the bad times come and something negative happens with a customer or with a television series like this, um, you can you can withstand it and, and keep on going. But you don't want too many of those. No. You want to prune, prune those negatives. Mm. And I think I, I, I used to say in my business that um, a business death is not immediate. It's from a thousand cuts. And so every That's, time you have a bad customer experience or you do something, it doesn't seem like anything big, um, little cut. And then those cuts become bigger and bigger over time. And I think that's the danger is that depending on the brand, how many cuts can you really have, you know, before it goes under? So I, I love what you're saying. And I can actually um, tell you how I say the same thing, but in my, in my language. So people think that brands have built-in life cycles. They think that, a brand, that brands must go inherently um, from youth to sort of middle age to maturity and then decline and you, and you know you you mm. know that typical curve right yeah, it goes like yeah. this yeah. um up and down um so what i believe is that that is actually a misinterpretation of what's actually happening the reason that mature brands slow down in growth is not because brands have inherent built-in you know life cycles where they must decline and ultimately die Um, the reason that brands decline over time is that they have accumulated negative associations that they never got rid of. Mm -hmm. And those negative associations weigh them down and stunt their growth. Caught up on them. Mm. Exactly. And so there's no reason, actually, any brand at any age can have whole new waves of growth. Um, they just have to manage their their positive and negative associations and make sure they keep pruning those negative associations, get rid of them as soon as they happen, mm. um, which it sounds like Netflix isn't doing right now. No, and, and um, it'd be interesting to see how it plays out, whether they actually decide to sort of give in and say, look, we're going to do it or, or hold true and say, well, no, that we believe in it. So I think that's the danger. Apparently they created a poster or something that the um, producer didn't even know about and <laughs> and caused a lot of controversy around that. But And I think that's the, yeah, I think the reality is, is that, you know, you look at some brands, they've been around 100 years or longer, right? It's not like those brands are necessary, like like some of the whiskey brands, right? They, they've probably been around 120 years. So the reality is, yeah, you're right. The brands don't die um, unless they let die um, at the end of the day. And I think that's the, the danger in small business is to think that a business is like that. I mean, COVID's a good example of that, right? You've got 
the airline industry, for example, um, like Qantas in Australia is, is basically only flying a few routes of stop international flights altogether, and they're predicting that they won't see any sort of international travel back to normal until 2024. Now, that, that company is downsized dramatically. They've had to get rid of people. They've, they've changed the way they do their business. They've been, you know, like, I mean, I've got an app now that I think came out in June where if you walk, they give you frequent flyer points, right? <laughs> Pretty brilliant when you think about it. So they, they've connected yeah. wellness with the idea of walking, getting points later down the track, so a future kind of benefit. And to me, that's really a cool way of, it, like, an airline company thinking like that to me is quite amazing because they normally don't like they don't get outside their wheelhouse but they're selling health insurance and they're selling other sorts of insurance to that process but so I went and did it because I thought well you know I've got nothing else to do I'm, as a, I'm walking anyway I might as well just connect the app up and got about six or seven hundred points so far or something but that's a very interesting way of kind of connecting a wellness and and their culture to that customer that down the track will probably pay off dividends I love that. I think that's a great example. Mm. Uh, and it's certainly a great example of a workaround mm. and taking an industry that has been struck very badly by COVID. Um, I call them the, the, the COVID uncorrelated businesses mm. as mm. opposed to the COVID correlated businesses um, like toilet paper and gardening equipment. Uh, mm. Those are the COVID correlated ones. Um, but that's a great example of a COVID uncorrelated business finding a way to still be COVID correlated mm. to make themselves relevant uh, at this time yeah. um, with a trend um, health and wellness that is obviously only accelerated during this period. So it's, it's connecting the two together, really, because people started worrying about their health and 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 then sort of thing, and then they're saying, "Well, I can't ever travel again." So I think it's a great way. So. Um, one of the things you said in the, the Wharton article, something about cracking the code on brand growth. So how did, what's that sort of discovery of that and how does it work in terms of how brands actually grow? So the secret to growing your brand is that you have to do these two things um, and you have to do them consistently. You have to build more positive than negative associations mm -hmm. and you have to make your brand connect home, branch out and sprout more branches. One of the ways to think about this uh, from a metaphorical standpoint is that uh, a new brand is like a sapling and the sapling takes root in the brain and as you water it and give it soil, uh, you feed it, then it sprouts some branches. You add more associations, more positive associations, and more branches have to form to hold the associations, which are like the leaves on the branches. And little by little, the more associations you add, the more positive associations you add, which are the food that the tree needs to grow, the more that tree sprouts. And the moment at which the canopy of your tree is larger than the canopy of your competitor's brand connectome, their tree, that is the moment that you, your brand becomes the consumer's dominant instinctive choice. And that is obviously what we're all striving for, to be that instinctive choice that's on autopilot. So we can actually predict the moment at which consumers will jump 
from a competitive brand to your brand. We actually can see with their brand connectomes um, that the brand connectome of the of the client that we're working on, their brand connectome has now has more positive associations and is larger than the brand connectome of the competition. Wow. And that's yeah. how it works. And there's no other way. Like that's brain science. That's that's how you make brands grow. So probably something slightly related. When when COVID hit, um, one of the things I went and did is I bought a bunch of um, seeds for you know vegetables and 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 stuff. stuff. And in- interesting enough, I must have been ahead of the curve because like a week or so later, the local uh, Bunnings um, warehouse stuff said they've got no seeds left. <laughs> like everybody just went there and <laughs> started buying seeds. Anyway, so I. I, I me and gardening is like, well, you know, like we'll see how it goes and the fittest survive, right? <laughs> and so I overplanted it, right? And so all this stuff starts growing out of the blue and all this sort of thing. And, it, and you're right, what happened was that, you know, as time went on, the stronger plants survived and the other ones just killed the other ones because basically they just got bigger and they just made the other ones just die off because they couldn't get anything, couldn't get any oxygen or couldn't get any air. And I think that's it's interesting when you look at that. It's like a whole marketing exercise. So when I looked at it and thought, well, that's like you usually do with marketing. Right? You just spray everything out and just chuck as many seeds out as you can hope something grows. And and then you, and you have unexpected results because you don't know what you're doing, right? So you end up in a situation where, you know, I had to start pruning stuff back. So next time I do this, I go, well, spread the seeds out more. Like think about it a bit better. A bit more planning would have been a good idea, right? Um, and it's just like looking at this whole marketing campaign going out in my backyard. <laughs> I, I think that's actually a great metaphor too. Uh, it, it, that is really how I think about it, that marketers really need to be much more deliberate um, because I think there's a lot of, of guessing and estimating and not really knowing, mm-hmm. but you can actually look at your brand connectome in the mind of the, the competitors that you're trying, the competitive users you're trying to get, and you can make that brand connectome healthier. And the healthier that brand connectome is in your prospects' minds, the higher ROI you're going to get when you try to you know, market to them. Because if the brand connectome has a lot of negative associations, you can spend $100 million against mm-hmm. that target. They're not coming over. Um, the only way they're going to come over is, is if they're positively predisposed, meaning they have a more positive than negative. The ratio of positive to negative associations is higher. Uh, then you're going to be very productive with your marketing campaign. Um, and, and spending a lot of money there is going to work. It's going to be efficient. You're going to get a high ROI. So that really the health of the brand connectome in some ways is the most important metric for a marketer because it dictates how fast you're going to grow uh, your, your, your revenue and your top-line sales. Yeah, it makes sense. So you talked about subconscious advantage, right? So how do you get that without being, you know, stalky and, and sneaky in that respect? Because obviously there's a, there's a level that you can use this for evil as well, right? So you almost have to pinky swear that you don't like, use this stuff for evil as well because some people do, right? Um, yeah, I, I don't think about it quite that way, um, I, I, but I understand what you're, what you're mm-hmm. asking. So mm-hmm. here's how I think about it. Think about the notion of competitive advantage, um, when I went to business school, you know, one of the first things we got was the Michael Porter, the Professor Michael Porter textbook, Competitive Advantage. <clears throat> and in it, it taught us that there's only two ways to get a competitive advantage. <clears throat> one way is that you can be the low-cost supplier. 
And the other way you can, can get a competitive advantage is if you're actually very differentiated. You know, your product is completely differentiated and you can charge a premium. Those are the only two ways you can get a competitive advantage. But I will tell you that in 25 years of doing projects, I have seen a ton of products and brands that have a high level of actual differentiation. They're, they're very superior products, mm. but they have parity perceptions. The perception of the brand is that it's the same as all the others. And I can also tell you about the contrast um, where the brand has parity, you know, actual parity performance, but it's perceived to be superior. Mm. <laughs> so at the end of the day, really the only thing that matters is perception mm -hmm. because that is what is going to determine how much you can charge and how much value people, you know, tell you they'll get from the product, how much you need to discount it, how much you can sell, you know, on deal, not on deal. Uh, and so really perceptions of your brand uh, and the subconscious um, is the key. So I say, you know, competitive advantage, meet your replacement because sub subconscious advantage mm -hmm. is far more important. And mm -hmm. the key to getting a subconscious advantage is to dominate the subconscious with positive associations, as I've said. Mm -hmm. That is the key. Um, and I don't think of that as uh, a, a sneaky thing. I think of that as actually, you know, giving customers the, the, the benefits um, and all of the positive associations that they want about your brand. Because you can't fake that in the end of the day. No, they, they know what they want mm. and, you know, and, and you got to give it to them. Otherwise... Mm. That's that's the end. <laughs> and it's quite interesting, like in, in some respects, I think some brands um, get too arrogant about what they, they are about and not necessarily listen to that customer and their brand perception of what they're getting. And I think um, it was an interesting thing about in Australia where um, the toilet paper thing, right, um, what happened was there was a perception that there was the people were going to run out of toilet paper, better go buy some. And so everybody went and bought some. So what happened in Australia was that the the predominant brand like Kleenex or whatever was not manufactured in Australia anymore. It's actually manufactured in China. And so the local brand ran out. And so this other thing called Quilton came out. And suddenly, because they were trying to buy toilet paper, and everybody bought this Quilton. And Quilton was a brand that was manufactured in Adelaide in Australia. And they had a huge factory and they could ramp it up and start making all this toilet paper. But it wasn't really any, you know, ultimately the toilet paper isn't as good as Kleenex brand and isn't as great. And it's cheaper as well. But the reality was is they had to switch brands because they had no choice, right? But I would imagine that as soon as, and, and pretty much for us too, as soon as that brand came back available, they went back to that brand. So they made a substitution, but then they just straight back to that brand. So it never really hurt them by losing that market share for a while because, you know, basically probably now it's back to normal. But people um, bought something else, and there were, there was things on eBay like saying, "Like, well, buy, buy, you know, thing quilt for a million dollars and stuff like that." So, like, it's become crazy. But you can just see how how a customer will change brands if they have to, but they'll go back. Right. Uh, that that's a great point. And um, one of the things that we're seeing with our clients during COVID um, is that we're seeing a lot of brands that have gotten these growth spurts, but the purchases that they're getting are transactional in nature. 
That's what you've just described. Yep. Um, the, there was no availability, so the, the consumers had to switch. There's panic buying. Um, they don't really need more toilet paper, but, but they you know, just bought it out of you know, fear of missing out. Mm. Um, but those transactional purchases are, are fleeting. Mm. Because they have not changed their instinctive brand preference, mm. and you, so you, the example you gave is is really a great um, a great example as part of this conversation, because it just goes to show you that when you haven't changed people's memory structure underneath, deep in the subconscious, all you're really getting is a fleeting, uh, you know, fleeting sales gain. It's mm. not a long term change in brand preference. And what we're, tr- we're striving for and what we want to help marketers get to is that instinctive brand preference where they buy you over and over and over again, mm. um, you know, now, after COVID, into the future. And I mean, I think if I was, if I was, I was Quilton's marketing guy, I'd say to them that um, right now they, had a, they missed out on a huge opportunity because all they had to really do was connect the Quilton brand to Australian manufacturer which is a big thing when COVID's kind of created this, and I bet you it's in the US as well, is let's make sure we make our own stuff. I mean, US does make a lot of their own stuff. So their imports are nothing like what we import. And I think they, they should have turned around and said, hey, let's connect the brand to an Australian, um, you know, culture and saying, look, you know, buy Australian, support Australian manufacturer. This is made in Australia. You don't know this happen again kind of thing. But they didn't do any of that, right? They just let the thing slip back again, I think. Because I haven't seen, like, I don't watch TV much, but there's no campaigns that I've seen about their brand of toilet paper where they had a massive opportunity to take a huge amount of market share through some sort of degree of, of emotional level. And they missed it. And I think they'll never get that opportunity again um, easily. I, I couldn't agree with you more. This is exactly the conversation we're having our, with our clients today. Um, our clients who are COVID correlated, who had the bump, who, who mm-hmm. got that growth spurt, what we're saying to them is it's great that you got that. We're, we're happy for you that you were one of the businesses that actually fared well during this period. But don't pat yourself on the back too much because if you don't sustain it, then what did you really accomplish? Mm. These people have one foot in the door. This is exactly the point you're making. These consumers have one foot in the door of your brand. So now your job is to change them, transform them from short-term transactional buyers into long-term instinctive buyers. Mm. And you actually can do that by giving them the right positive associations, the same positive associations that your real users, your, your heavy users, your loyal users, users have. Uh, mm. So it's actually not that difficult to do. Uh, but you do need to compare the minds of the transactional buyers to the, uh, the, the loyal buyers in order to do that and understand those, those barriers and drivers. So in, in that situation, like if you're a small company, right, and, and you've got these massive big brands, got these big ad budgets, which arguably don't waste in some respects anyway, um, how does a small business operator get to that that brand connection, and how do they how do they figure that out in terms of what where do they start, what do they do? So um, they actually have uh, uh, an ability to gain a subconscious advantage from those larger brands um, because a small brand can uh, go after a much larger brand and become a disruptor. Mm. Uh, you know, one of the things I talk about in the Knowledge at Wharton article is Dollar Shave Club. 
So Dollar Shave Club came out of nowhere mm. and they went up against the largest names in the razor business, you know, Schick and Gillette, uh, which really owns the global market um, of those uh, of that category. And what Dollar Shave Club did in a, a one minute video that ended up going viral on YouTube um, is that they gave themselves a lot of positive associations very quickly. Low cost razors, you don't really need an expensive razor. This is the same kind of razor that your grandfather used. You, didn't re you don't really need anything more than that. They filmed the CEO in a warehouse instead of in a fancy office and associated their brand, Dollar Shave Club, with being economical and not wasting money on marketing and like on like fancy an Ikea, offices. Right. Like an Ikea kind of thing, yeah. Right, exactly. Um, and they simultaneously gave negative associations to the big guys. And he said, you know, you don't need a razor that has a flashlight on it, an air conditioner, a toolkit. You know, you don't need an, this over-engineered mm. product. Mm. Um, and so they kind of did this wonderful one-two punch of giving negative associations to the competition, a large dominant company that was going to have a lot of volume um, for, you know, for them to go after and giving themselves a lot of positive associations. By doing both of those things simultaneously, they shrunk the brand connect home of the big guys, uh, the Gillettes of the world. And they grew the brand Connectome almost overnight, made it branch out um, of, of Dollar Shave Club. And so really any small brand um, can, can use that same recipe to make some major inroads in, in a large legacy brand. Wow. So, and I mean, so the you, big you, brands have to watch out. <laughs> yeah, and I think that's the thing. I think the trouble is they're very slow-moving beasts, right? So they'll, yeah. they'll take a lot longer to pay attention. And, and, and we sort of like talk about people come up with great ideas and they think, oh, well, sign an NDA in case someone else gets it. The reality is most people are too lazy to implement your ideas anyway. These big companies, that if you try and you go to a big company and try and pitch your idea to them and you'll soon find out, um, that they have no capacity for that. <laughs> and so, you know, they'll just ignore you until you become a problem and then and they'll try and take you out if you do. So they don't really try and compete in that level for, for quite some time. I mean, I think Uber is a good example of that. They, they overtook the taxi industry so quickly because they basically, the taxi industry had no answer to it. They just tried to ignore them. They tried to get them out. They tried every legal angle. They tried everything they could do negatively to stop it. Um, but in the end, they lost because of, of the brand perception that Uber was able to get. So, a hundred percent, yeah, they had that agility that mm. the big companies just don't have. So. You could see it coming, right? You could really see that that the industry needed um, a push. But you know, and how you do it, it's quite interesting. So I think, yeah, I think I think that that's the opportunity in the marketplace now between social media and the ability to kind of get something like go like that go viral. You've got a huge opportunity there. Cost you nothing to get that brand. In some respects, if you get it right, if you think about it properly, a hundred percent, I agree. Cool. So, um, what would you like to leave people with, like in terms of you know the last thoughts, in terms of what maybe something they should go do now or, or whatever, and also how do they get in touch with you? Uh, you know, is there something they can get from you that will help them in this sort of journey? 
sure. So um, I have put together a little uh, package of my new rules of marketing, mm-hmm. uh, which are brace- based on brain science. And people can get that um, from uh, a link and uh, we'll, you can put that in the show notes yeah. uh, later. Um, otherwise, they can find me on triggers.com, which is uh, the name of my company, or at lesliezane.com. Uh, you can link with me. Um, feel free to reach out. I love meeting new people. Uh, and I guess for what I would leave you with is to say, really, um, you know, the brain is constantly learning and changing. And no brand and no business is really stuck where it is because every day the brand connectomes change and they look different than the day before. Uh, And so I I really have a very optimistic message for all entrepreneurs, um, which is, you know, every brand has untapped growth potential, no matter what stage you're at. All you need to do is dominate the subconscious uh, of your prospective customers, feed it lots and lots of positive associations, keep on nurturing it, and then you will ultimately gain the subconscious advantage, and that will enable you to do um, more with less. And, mm-hmm. and that's really the key for small companies. Um, you, you, you are resource constrained. And so what the subconscious advantage really allows you to do is to gain share, uh, accelerate your revenue growth and do it with less resources. Sounds cool. Yeah. I mean, that's very insightful. And what you, we've talked about today, I think it's really something that people, it's something that's, that's not hard to implement, right? It's not like you, you know, you just got to take a different perspective and that positive kind of thing. So that's, Pretty cool. I really, really appreciate your um, your depth of knowledge, and I mean, um, I'm sure we go check that out because I think um, you know at the end of the day you really can't lose in that situation, right? The more you do that, the more chances you've got of success, really. A hundred percent. And and thank you so much for having me today, John. And and thanks for the terrific questions. You're you're a great interviewer. This was a lot of fun. Yeah, cool. I keep, I keep practicing. We've got we've come up to our fiftieth episode, so I've been a bit wow. lazy in terms of getting enough episodes going. Like some people got hundreds of episodes, but I sort of like like take it nice and slow and get you know get some good ep- get interviews in. So it's really cool. Thank you for that. So um, we'll maybe come back again sometime and talk about the maybe we'll talk about the Netflix and what happened in a year's time or something. <laughs> Who knows? We'll do some post so post analysis. So thanks so much for your time, and we'll talk to you again soon. Thank you so much. It was an honor to be here.